Hello, hello. Welcome to Highbrow. How is everyone doing today? Um, some things that I've been up to. The other day I went to the Sturbridge show, which if you don't know what that is, it's a vintage show. I believe that this was the first time it's come to New York City. Usually it's in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, hence the name. Um, but that was really fun. I love going to vintage shows. I don't know if you know this about me. I feel like if you follow me on Instagram, you know, but that's where I get all my gems, like my actual like vintage gems. Um, because I'd say I would shop around throughout the year, but it's at these shows where they have all these like curators who come in and they have like their really old stuff, like antiques, 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, um, clothing, but also like accessories, jewelry, sometimes even just like random objects. Things that I would not be able to find on my own personally, or even if I did know where to find them, I just like wouldn't personally have the time or energy to go through these like, you know, warehouses um, and stuff like that. But I think honestly, most of the sellers that I've talked to, they get most of their stuff from other vintage sellers. So it is kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of interesting because they'll like sell each other their stock and then you know, it kind of goes back and forth sometimes, which is funny if you follow everyone in the circle. But then also, uh, the more established you are, you'll get people like calling in to be like, hey, my grandmother died. She has a bunch of stuff in her closet. Would you like to buy any of this stuff? So I've actually talked to a couple sellers who've had like really interesting stories um, about their pieces because they've acquired them from a family or from... Um, someone who knew the original wearer, which is really cool. One of my favorite items that I have in my personal closet is this headpiece and it has these fringe pieces. I've maybe only photographed it like once ever. Um, I don't wear it too often because it's kind of delicate and also kind of like a random excessive piece to be wearing on the street. I say that as if I don't wear my like reproduction regency bonnet all the time. Um, but you know, it's like, it's a little different. It's more like evening wear coated. And I bought it at this store and the woman who sold it to me told me that, um, the person who wore it was a magician's assistant. So it was like a show girl, like magician's assistant, like performing headpiece, like costume headpiece, which is really cool. And she, um, told me the name of the magician too. And I'm really sad. I can't remember the name of the magician. It was like Harold or something, but he's like a famous magician because I remember, afterwards I went home and looked him up and there were like photos of him um so yeah I love like having a time capsule of history in my closet love when I get to know things love when there's photographs when I was in LA I went to this um vintage showroom it was this beautiful house the woman who operates the showroom, it's in her own house and it's like a historic preserved house. I don't even know what the process is to be able to own a historic house, but it has the whole plaque on the outside. I think it was constructed in like 1901 or something. So really old, um, really beautiful. And on the inside, it wasn't just like her showroom of clothing that she was selling. It's like the entire house was decorated with all these cool antiques and knickknacks. Um, she had a library with like cases of old like embalming fluid, which I know sounds really gross, but it was super, super cool. And she um, told me that they have like really insane 
Halloween parties um, and they have like a casket or like a coffin or something um, in the basement that they bring out for it. <laughs> so just like a very, very fun um, little house. But one of the suits that I was looking at, because I was looking for a three-piece suit, I'm having a bit of a menswear phase. Um, it hasn't been going very well because obviously like I'm a very short person. I think I read short. I say obviously as if all of you have seen me in person. Um, but I think I also like photograph short. So I don't think it's a surprise that people like see me and they're like, oh, she's she's short. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, I was looking at her three-piece suits and there was this one three-piece suit, super cool. It was like pinstripe, if I remember correctly. I looked at a bunch, but um, she told me that it was owned by this guy and he was like an actor or something. He wasn't like a famous, famous actor, um, but he like did some roles and she had a photograph of him wearing the suit. So I just, I love that kind of stuff. I love those stories. Um, also, her store is called Paper Moon Vintage. And um, I believe she runs an Etsy. She used to actually have a store in LA that you could like, it was like literally just a store, but then she closed it during the pandemic um, and now operates like an appointment-based showroom within her house. And I think she participates in some of those like flea markets out in LA. I'm not quite sure. But yeah, worth checking out. She has a lot of like really old stuff. Um, I was trying on some like top hats, some antique top hats. I don't know what was going on with like heads back then, like head shapes, but I couldn't fit any of them. And I don't think I have like a particularly like massive head, like I do have a relatively big head, but it's not like I don't have like the biggest head in the world, you know? Like I'm pretty sure there's like lots of men who have the same head shape as me. And yet I have, and this is not just like from her showroom of the two hats that I tried on, but every single top hat I've tried to try on has not fit me. And I know some of you maybe be like, okay, just go to Spirit Halloween and get like a little magician's top hat. It's not the same. <laughs> The top hats that men actually wore back in like the Victorian era um, or the Edwardian era, like they were stiff. They were very sturdy. Like and they, they're they kind of heavy. Like a lot of these top hats you see in these like, you know, even modern day top hats that are sold in like suit stores and stuff, I feel like they're kind of on the flimsier side or they're just very light. Um, and I don't love that. So my search for the Victorian top hat continues. Um, but things that I bought at the vintage show I try to be very precise with the things that I'm buying and usually my mindset right is that I purchase things that have more wearability but when I go to these shows it's like I'm a museum curator like I'm looking for stuff that I've never seen before that I don't think I could find easily myself and things that are probably only going to be worn like once or twice a year if if that um and I don't know, some people might be like, what's the point in that? They're clothes, you should wear clothes. And to an extent, I totally agree. Um, but I also just like, my dream in life, and probably it's going to be when I move out of New York and is able to afford like more square footage, is to just like have like a boudoir and have my clothing 
function more as like art objects like you know a painting or a sculpture or something like that um and that's not to say that I don't believe in wearing any of the clothing so I don't actually ever buy clothing that doesn't fit me <laughs> because I want the option to wear it um if I ever get invited to some kind of gala but uh in terms of like everyday wear these pieces are definitely not for that but speaking of galas I found and I posted this on Instagram I found these like really cute little tagline things um they're basically like strips of felt and they have funny catchphrases on them that are kind of flirty so you know one of them was like naughty or nice and there was another my favorite one me and my friend Annabelle we went together and our favorite one was um this one that said wink and I'll do the rest so they're kind of cheeky kind of fun and the seller who was selling them, she said that they were these tags that you would wear in the 1930s and 40s at like parties. They were kind of like a party game accessory and you would attach them to the back of your dress or clothes and then you would have to find someone who had a matching tagline um, and that was like your date for the duration of the game. And I was thinking about how fun that would actually be to play games at parties um, because I feel like, I don't know, maybe this is just me and, or maybe this is like a New York thing or I don't know. I feel like I go to a party and rarely do we ever play any kind of game. And most of the time it's usually like people who have congregated in their own little cliques. If it's like a bigger party, like if there's like 50 people say plus, um, then people just tend to like congregate with like the couple friends that they know and, it's rare that you'll actually like engage in a conversation with other people. Um, and may the more I say this, the more like crazy it sounds and the more actually I realized this wasn't my experience while I was in college. And it's really just my experience living in New York and being part of like the whole fashion, like art industry. A lot of these events that brands, for instance, put on, they're not really conducive to making new friends, even though you would think so because they're inviting people that are all kind of in the same industry and the same kind of social scene. But in my experience, like people just kind of like to talk to their own people. Um, I don't know if that's also because in New York, people just like work a lot. And so you just don't have that much time to see all of your friends who live in the city. And so these events are like good meeting points for catching up with someone who you haven't like talked to in a bit. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like a lot of New York parties that are not organized by like individual people in their own houses, which honestly tends to be the case. Okay, this is another tangent that I'm going off on. But I have noticed even like with people that I'm friends with who are not necessarily in a scene, they'll like organize a birthday event at a bar or something. Um, and that's probably by nature because New York apartments are so small and kind of difficult for hosting. And then also at the same time, like people just live all over the city. So I have friends in Queens. I don't really go up to Queens to see them and they don't really come down to Brooklyn to see me. We kind of just meet in the middle in Manhattan or whatever. So when people just like live in different places, you just want to make it easier by like hosting at a specific venue. So I totally understand that. But I think a lot of these venues are not really conducive to like doing group, like everyone involved in a party activity. And that's what I miss because that's what I experienced a lot in college. Um, and granted, a lot of the parties that I went to were considerably smaller. So you were kind of like forced to talk to people because there was only like 20 people at the party. But I feel like when you say yes 
to an when you RSVP yes to an invite to something, you should be going in with an open mind, like having signed a social contract that you are open to the idea of making new friends. Because why else would you go to a party? right? Like you can just like invite your friends over to your house or like meet them for dinner somewhere if all you want to do is talk to like your particular group of people. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I've just been thinking about that a lot lately because I've been sort of tired of going to a lot of events because of this kind of mindset where I feel like people are just not that interested in talking to someone new and it's totally fine like I don't vibe with every single person I meet like it's impossible to um it's very human to not connect with certain people or to connect more with other people I think that's totally fine but I think when you go into these specific spaces like me and my friends we have this term where it's like no new friends like the vibe was no new friends and that's when we feel like everyone within a space is just giving off this like don't talk to me kind of energy or like if you do go up to talk to them you can tell like they're not really that in interested in the conversation but again like I don't even think that a lot of people who are like that are necessarily malicious I think it really could just be like oh you know I haven't seen like certain people in a really long time I just want to spend the night catching up with them like that makes so much sense to me um but I don't know I just kind of love the idea of a party game because it forces everyone to participate and there's a structure to these games most of the time so you're not like you know forced to just come up with things to talk about with someone who you don't know I don't know it's just like a nice like engaging like icebreaker type of way to have fun and make new friends um so I think we need to bring back party games And also I apologize if I'm just saying something that's like super within my own bubble and like everyone else in the world plays party games. (laughs) I'm so jealous of you all is all I'm trying to say. But also just like with the whole vintage nightlife, night games or whatever situation, I feel like there's not as many events that I can go to these days that require me to like actually like dress up and look nice, like put on my best evening dress, so to speak. I feel like a lot of nightlife events I get invited to are more clubby type of events and you don't really want to wear anything nice because people could spill their drink on you um, or people could like step on your dress if you have a train, which is really all I want. Like I want an excuse to wear a dress with a train out and about. Like rich people get to go to these kind of events all the time. Like all those like Academy Award shows and the Met Gala and all these other type of like fundraising galas that I probably don't know about. Or there's like that princess on TikTok or I don't know. She's like a rich aristocratic girl um, who goes to like Parsons or something. But she went viral for doing these like get ready with me to go to a ball in Spain and she would wear like these elaborate couture outfits and I'm like I I want that I want that to be my reality like I don't even have to wear the couture dress I just want an excuse to wear a nice dress somewhere and like dance around with other people wearing nice things who also want to dance around is that too much to ask okay I've been going on this tangent for a while this is not even what I wanted to talk about um I recently watched the movie Priscilla which a lot of people have already asked me to write a review about. But the thing is like when it comes to movie releases, I can't get access to the footage until it like comes out on streaming or DVD, which is usually several months after it's already left the theater. So 
it wouldn't really be possible for me to make a review until after it becomes available in that sense. And at that point, I don't really know if people would be still interested in hearing about it because it's kind of going to be like a washed topic and something that I've, the sad game that I've realized when it comes to social media is like relevance is everything. So um, I'm just going to give my first impression thoughts here. But as for like a costume review, I think I'll wait. I well, I definitely ha- will have to wait until it becomes more available so that I can rewatch it. And if I have like enough to say or if I'm like still inspired to talk about this movie, then um, yeah, I can do a review, like a costume review. But okay, so Priscilla, I had a lot of mixed feelings about. I do really love Sofia Coppola's artistic vision. I think she is one of those directors who's very true to her vision and she has um, a very clear, very recognizable way of directing that, you know, you can just like sit down and watch any of her movies and you're like, this is a Sofia Coppola movie, which I think is very impressive um, to do as a director, to have that kind of like footprint. And in that regard, I think Priscilla is very in line with Sofia's work. I think that... There were lots of pretty pictures (laughs) within the movie. It's definitely mood board material. Um, I thought the acting was pretty decent also. I was very impressed with Jacob Elordi, not because I don't think he's a good actor. I really have only seen him in Euphoria, Um, but it's because I've like only seen him in Euphoria. So like, I don't know, he's just not really been on my radar, especially because I don't like Euphoria. But I got it. Like, I understand why people are part of Alordi Nation having watched this movie. I think he is really good. I didn't even know he has an Australian accent in real life. So that's even more impressive that he was able to do this um, on top of, like, an accent. On top of also, like, a character voice. Because Elvis has this very specific way of speaking, as we all know from, like, Austin Butler's, like, (laughs) cringy method acting. But um, I think that the voice it was a little difficult to understand some of the things that he was saying like it wasn't like perfect perfect I kind of wish there were subtitles um but I think he did a really good job with what he was given he also looks a lot like Elvis I think um he looks like a yassified Elvis I'm not gonna lie I don't really think Elvis is that attractive (laughs) so that was also like um you know a, a bonus for me um I did watch Baz Luhrmann's Elvis and I did like it, okay? I know that's a very contentious statement because a lot of people didn't like it, but I did. I thought it was very over the top, very visually spectacular. I thought Austin Butler did a great job as Elvis, even though I do think his behavior like (laughs) following the filming of the movie with still trying to keep on to this voice was a bit like performative. Um, Like I don't really believe that he couldn't get out of the voice, you know? But I think all the awards that he was nominated for, like, I think that was very valid. I think Austin Butler did a great job. He also had a lot more to do because Elvis is an Elvis biopic. Priscilla is a Priscilla biopic. So um, a lot of the poignant moments within Elvis's life were not the focus in the movie. Like, his mom dying was not the focus in the movie. Even, like, his performances, we don't really see Elvis perform ever in Priscilla. Like, we see, like, vignettes from the back of him just sort of like doing these dance moves but 
there's no like full-on performance that Jacob Elordi had to simulate in the same way that Austin Butler had to do like a bunch of performances for Elvis and I think he did those really well like he was able to do it in a way that didn't make Elvis seem like a caricature which is really hard to do because the entirety of like Elvis's whole shtick like I it can't even compute to me how people didn't think it was just funny like people were actually like foaming at the mouth like falling in love with him like the whole fangirl moment and I think Austin Butler did really well at taking his job very seriously and also just like kind of being sexy like I'm not an Austin Butler fangirl by any means um but I was kind of like blushing <laughs> during those Elvis performances. I was like, okay, yeah, I can see it. So I don't think Jacob Elordi was better at being Elvis. I think he had a different um, script to work with quite literally. And I think he did a good job with what he was given. But the Elvis in Priscilla, it's not like the flashy hero Elvis in Elvis. Like he just kind of plays this abusive boyfriend if it wasn't for the fact that he kept flying out to different places and the fact that he had like an entourage I feel like you can't really tell how famous Elvis is in the movie Priscilla because it's never really focused on his achievements or like his fan base even like the majority of the movie is shot at this set that's supposed to resemble Graceland and it's mostly shot even in the bedroom of that set. It's super intimate. Like you kind of just see Elvis for like the weirdo grooming predatory man that he is in the context of his relationship and not anything else, which I think is really special. <laughs> it made me cringe so much. I cannot even tell you how uncomfortable I was watching this movie, especially at the beginning because the hair and makeup was so good. And even though uh, Keely Sweeney, who plays Priscilla, is only a year younger than Jacob Elordi, like, she literally looked like she was 14. Jacob Elordi looks like a whole-ass man. I was like, get away from her. Stop it. <laughs> and every time, like, he was inviting her over to his room and, like, you know, stuff like that, I, like, physically recoiled. I was like, oh, my God, this is so gross. There was not one scene in that movie where it was romantic that I was not grossed out at, <laughs> which says a lot because, you know, I think in another in another movie, in another context, Kaylee Sweeney and Jacob Elordi, they're both beautiful people. I could definitely be like, oh my God, I'm rooting for this couple. Yeah, like give me more romance. But in the context of this movie, they played their character so well. The hair and makeup team really went off. I was like, ew, this is not working. He's a predator. <laughs> I mean, also it's just the fact that Jacob Elordi is a massive man. Like he is six foot five, I believe, according to Google. And Kaylee Spaney is like five foot one. So their height difference was insane. And I think that really emphasized also this kind of power and difference. Because in real life, Elvis and Priscilla didn't have that big of a height difference. I think she's like five foot four. He was like six feet tall. So I think this casting decision really like hits the nail on the head that Elvis had such a big power dynamic with Priscilla. I know there was a lot of anxiousness about this movie before it came out that, you know, why are we even talking about this relationship, especially because it's produced by Priscilla Presley and famously Priscilla still like loves Elvis, like she doesn't really acknowledge the fact that she's been groomed and so a lot of people were anxious about how this was going to portray their relationship um, and if it was going to portray grooming in like a, you know like a more positively coded way and I don't think it did at all like I think 
you still see that there's like delusion um, when Priscilla Presley leaves at the end of the movie. Spoiler alert. Okay, she leaves Elvis. They divorced in real life. And the track that plays, the needle drop, is I Will Always Love You by Dolly Parton. So I think Sophia really touches on like the complicated relationship that Priscilla has with Elvis like internally um, and that it's not as black and white for her in terms of like, you know, he's a predator, I'm a victim. Like I think in Priscilla's mind, there was still reasons to love Elvis and that she wasn't necessarily like a victim the entire relationship the entire marriage but rather than just highlighting Priscilla's perspective what I really loved about this movie is not only the casting kind of indicates how Sophia herself feels about this relationship but also the fact that you see how this relationship is perceived by other characters in the movie that kind of ground it in a sense of reality um like Priscilla's parents in the movie are extremely like anxious about her relationship with Elvis like her mom is constantly saying why can't he find someone his own age um and they ultimately like don't stop their daughter from developing this relationship but you hear them fighting about what to do in the background you also see other characters within the the cinematic universe who are like oh she's really young so I think this kind of commentary outwards it pulls you from just getting lost in the quote-unquote love story of Elvis and Priscilla. Like, it gives you a reality check that this is not normal and this is gross. <laughs> what I didn't love about this movie is that the ending felt really rushed. Like, the majority of the movie is spent with Priscilla and Elvis in this relationship and he kind of is abusive, like, throughout the entire movie. And you just see her sort of dealing with it. Like there's no internal monologue of any sort. You just see it in Priscilla's eyes that like she realizes something's wrong. But then she doesn't do anything about it. Like after every single instance that's highlighted in the movie. So when she does decide to leave him, it feels really unearned. Because you're like, what was it that happened in the last five minutes that triggered this reaction from her versus like any of the other moments in the movie so far. Like to me, it wasn't clear that something intolerable had happened that made Priscilla want to leave. And I understand that in real life, a lot of the times it's not just like one breaking moment, right? It's kind of like a culmination of these things that you've been dealing with. But from a movie standpoint, from like a narrative standpoint, I think it benefits for the script to be really clear about that moment for audiences to get. Because I don't know, like movies are not necessarily real life. Like I think having a beginning, middle, and end are really important. And I just felt like this ending was just super rushed and not as tight as the other two acts. I don't know if that's also just because of Sophia's style that kind of gets in the way of that clarity because I've noticed with a lot of her movies, she's not very dialogue heavy. Like her movies are very moody, um, but the female protagonists in them, they tend to be kind of like tight lips. Like they don't really convey their feelings, their emotions. They don't really have internal dialogues. Like you kind of just read what they're feeling in their eyes. Um, which I think draws from Sophia's like own experience because she's very like reserved or she comes across as very reserved in interviews. I think she's been like described as being such also um, throughout her life. 
And then she also tends to choose characters that have like a similar type of perspective as her own. So like, you know, just this girl who's brought into or born into um, privileged circumstances and the way that this girl like navigates her life. I feel like that's kind of Sophia's life. Um, And so I see her inserting parts of herself in these protagonists. And I think that's why we usually don't get that much like dialogue in a Sophia movie. But I'm not even saying that dialogue is that important in a movie because, okay, I'm reading this book called Truffaut Hitchcock right now. And if you like Alfred Hitchcock, I highly recommend reading it. Um, It's basically a series of interviews that were conducted between Francois Truffaut and Alfred Hitchcock about like Hitchcock films. And Truffaut is another director. He's also was a critic um, for the Cahiers du Cinema. And I also love his movies. He's like one of the pioneers of the French New Wave. But he was inspired to interview Alfred Hitchcock because he said that a lot of his colleagues in France, they all admired Alfred Hitchcock. They felt like he was really doing something great with cinema as an art form. But a lot of American critics at the time did not see the same thing. Like they thought of Hitchcock as just this like, you know, rich dude who makes entertaining movies. Um, They weren't really appreciating what he was doing artistically. And so, and Part of that is also because Hitchcock didn't really like talk about his work too much in interviews. Like he was pretty like reserved himself. So um, Truffaut took it upon himself to conduct these series of interviews to really get a sense of what Hitchcock was all about and specifically what he was doing with all of his movies. So it does talk about all of the movies he's made, even from like the first um, couple years when he was doing silent films. So It's really interesting if you like Hitchcock, just also really interesting if you like movies because it does talk about cinematography and directing and all that jazz. Um, I'd highly recommend it, but I I mention it because Hitchcock talks about dialogue and how he perceives dialogue as just another sound. And in his mind, you should be able to convey story with your eyes or with, I guess, the camera lens. And as an example of that, I don't know if you've seen Rear Window, this 1954 movie with Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly. It's a great movie. Um, I rewatched it the other day, actually, because I've been trying to rewatch the movies that I've seen while reading this book so I get like a better understanding of what he's talking about. But the premise of Rear Window is that Jimmy Stewart plays the protagonist. His name is Jeff. (laughs) And he got into this accident while photographing a race car race, an auto race. What do they call those? I don't know. Like, you know what I'm talking about. He's a photojournalist. And so the entire movie takes place within his apartment because he has a broken leg from this accident. So his leg is in a cast and he can't really move. Um, And so people just come in and out of his apartment and he just like spends all of his day looking, peeping into his neighbor's windows because, you know, it's the 1950s. There's only so much you can do to entertain yourself at home. The interesting thing, though, is that they never actually talk about how he got into this accident or, like, how he broke his leg. It's just set up straight from the beginning. Like, the first couple images in the film is you see him looking out the window. You see his leg in a cast. You see the broken camera that was presumably used in his accident and then you see the picture that he took of the car flipping over so when you 
look at all these pictures and string them together, you're like, oh, he broke his leg while taking a photo of this car race. So Hitchcock will do a lot of those things where instead of just like dialoguing the exposition or over relying on dialogue to tell the story, he tries to convey as much as possible through showing Showing over telling, right? Everyone talks about that. <laughs> so I don't know. My first impression after leaving the Priscilla movie was like, I kind of wish there was more dialogue or internal dialogue or something so that I could get a sense of what Priscilla was thinking before leaving. But thinking about it more now, I'm kind of like, I don't think that it necessarily needed more dialogue, which would definitely compromise the integrity of Sofia Coppola's directorial vision but I think that there could have been something in there to make it clearer that this was this specific incident was the moment where Priscilla would want to leave Elvis but overall I thought it was a really good movie I would definitely watch it again um it was very similar I think to Marie Antoinette <laughs> in terms of just like the premise of a woman who's kind of like stuck and claustrophobic within this palace that she's been given through her relationship. It's definitely less like opulent and less flashy, but I think that that was a good choice from the interviews that I've read about it. Sophia said they didn't have that much of a budget to work with and they also weren't given um, access to Graceland to film in. So they had to just like, you know, construct the set and do what they will with the limited budget. But I think it ended up benefiting the movie because the entire movie does feel very like kind of claustrophobic and dollhouse-like. So the limited sets adds to that. And I also think that, you know, a lot of people were kind of like, oh, did you like Elvis or Priscilla better? Or, you know, they compare the two. But I think they actually go really well as a pairing um, because Baz Luhrmann's Elvis is just so over the top, so flashy, so dramatic, so spectacular. And I think it really highlights the way that Elvis felt about himself, but also how the world felt about Elvis. Whereas Priscilla is very muted, even dull, honestly. Like a lot of the scenes at Graceland were kind of like dull in color. And I think it goes to show how Elvis was at home and the way that he failed in his relationships with other people. Even though Priscilla is a movie about Priscilla Presley I do feel like at the end of the day it was kind of a movie about Elvis and I know that's so um a lot of people are not going to agree with that because we do focus so much more on Priscilla than we focus on Elvis like Priscilla gets the most screen time for sure but I think it's just like the entire movie is her existence in context to Elvis and we don't see when she leaves or even her developing her own interests when they were still together that probably prompts her to leave like it really focuses on the way that Elvis kind of dims her light and because of that I think the two movies give you a very full interpretation of who Elvis was and I think it's very special that we're able to get like multiple sides to a person's um legacy at the end of the day I think biopics are just simplified versions of a person's life and they're never going to fully encapsulate who that person was um and I do feel like they're kind of like masturbatory in a sense but I do think that watching Priscilla demystifies a lot of things that were happening in Elvis and watching Elvis demystifies a lot of things that were happening in Priscilla so I do think that they actually go really good together <laughs> as a as a 
double feature viewing experience if you are so inclined and if you love Elvis that much. Which honestly for me, I'm not a huge Elvis fan. I think some of his music is good, but like in terms of his legacy, I've never been too deep into the study of Elvis. So um, yeah, that's that's my opinion on Priscilla. If you don't know where to start with your holiday shopping, Uncommon Goods is here to make it as stress-free as possible with tons of truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. They support small artists and businesses and offer everything from jewelry to kitchen items to virtual classes. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. Whether you're shopping for mom, dad, teenagers, in-laws, or your best friends, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. I've already picked out a homemade limoncello kit for a relative I know who won't stop talking about their European summer despite us being deep in the holiday season. And I've also been eyeing a bee drinking garden ball, which is a little glass orb that holds water for little pollinators to stop by and get a sip from. It was created by Stephen Kittres, who is a Canadian glass blower. So we love supporting small businesses that also create eco-conscious products. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash Mina. That's uncommongoods.com slash Mina for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. I want to go back to Hitchcock though because I've just been in a bit of a Hitchcock mood, but also because another movie I watched recently was The Killer. Starring Michael Fassbender, directed by David Fincher, and written by Andrew Kevin Walker. And I'm really trying to get the writing credits in these movies in because I was also reading this Sight and Sound article from a while ago about how writers just don't get any prestige a lot of the times when it comes to movies. Uh, I don't know. Andrew Walker, he's collaborated with David Fincher on a couple movies now. I think Seven was his most notable collaboration. So um, he's definitely like more well-known than like a lot of writers out there. But ugh, not to bring this back all to freaking Hitchcock, but Hitchcock wrote Rear Window with another writer. His name is um, John Michael Hayes. And he also collaborated with Hitchcock on The Trouble with Harry, To Catch a Thief, and The Man Who Knew Too Much. And in this article I was reading, Hayes said, In a now famous interview with Truffaut, Hitch tried to make it seem that he had written the screenplay for Rear Window. He had nothing to do with the writing. When I won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Rear Window, the first time it was ever given for a movie, I showed Hitch the ceramic statuette, and he said, You know they make toilet bowls out of the same material. After four films in a row that Hitchcock directed... Quote, I was becoming known, Hayes said modestly. Variety even talked about the Hitchcock-Hayes fall schedule. That was more than he could bear. Hitch was so unkind about giving credit, he wanted to be the total creator. Alfred Hitchcock presents. So yeah, that was a long-winded <laughs> re-explanation for why I'm like trying to focus on like name-dropping writers when I talk about movies, if I'm going to name-drop the director too. But I, oh, wait, sorry. I just had like a total thought change because it goes back to Jacob Lordy. One second. Jacob Elordi, uh, he's gotten into some hot water lately. I don't know. This is like online discourse, so I don't actually know if this is considered hot water. But 
he like talked about how he didn't actually like the Kissing Booth trilogy, which I believe is what launched his career. It was what he did before Euphoria, I want to say. I haven't seen these movies, um, so I don't know. I also have like no opinion on them. It seems like they're just kind of like fluffy Netflix rom-com type of movies, kind of like uh, To All the Boys of Love Before. Apologies if they're worse or better. I don't know. But they're not like prestige cinema, which I guess is what Jacob Elordi is trying to align himself with these days. Anyway, a lot of people didn't, specifically a lot of people who were fans of The Kissing Booth, didn't love that he said these things and they thought it was like off color and out of touch for him to basically shit on projects that are the building blocks for the kind of like career that he has today. And other people who were supporting Jacob Lordy was like, okay, well, this is, you know, you know, a double standard because... Robert Pattinson always makes fun of the Twilight series and people think that's funny. And then also like Jacob Elordi is paid to act. He's not paid to be like the hype man of a movie, especially long after it's been finished. So I don't know. In my opinion, I see like both sides of it because on one hand, especially as someone who like just finished acting school and you know, sack straight happened. So like I haven't auditioned for anything. But in the last like couple years, I've met a lot of actors, um, aspiring actors, like actors who've been working for a while, but haven't like landed like a major role. And I just know that they would love to be in Jacob Elordi's position. Honestly, I would love to be in Jacob Elordi's position. But I think when you say like these sorts of things, when you don't, um, or when you don't like share gratitude about all the jobs that were given to you, it does rub a lot of people the wrong way who would have loved to have the chance to be a part of that. Like it kind of just shows that you're not grateful is all it is in my point of view. Um, I think you can be definitely upset by the way that the movie turned out. You could feel like you were just accepting this role because you needed money at the time. Like that's very fair too. Like a job is a job. Um, and a lot of jobs are you're not passionate about. I think those are all like totally fine perspectives to have, but maybe not perspectives you should share <laughs> out loud in a press interview. I think this kind of goes to show two things. One on a personal note, like I don't, again, I'm just extrapolating. I don't know Jacob Elordi at all. I've never met him, I've never seen him. But just from looking at his career trajectory, I feel like he does have a certain complex about being tied to these movies. Um... And I think he feels a kind of like embarrassment over having been in these movies, especially now with how he seems to want to rebrand as like this very auteur, I'm edgy, I'm smart, I'm artistic, uh, this kind of rebrand. I think it, it doesn't go with the Kissing Booth trilogy for sure. And so I feel like he's kind of overcompensating in a way by trying to distance himself from these movies by being like, oh, they're not universal. They're not real art. Um, me, an actor who cares about real art, would never do these movies again. And to an extent, I also feel that same way about Robert Pattinson. And like, I'm not trying to s insinuate that I have a double standard. I think that Twilight really got Robert Pattinson a lot of money and allowed him to take these creative projects indie projects without having to worry about what he's going to eat the next day. Um, a lot of actors don't have that kind of privilege. But the other side of this that I feel is that it's kind of just 
a, a fault of the industry and the way that they expect actors to not just one act in the movie, but then promote the shit out of a movie even if they didn't like the movie, you know? Like, how many times have you done a job and you're like, this? I don't like this job. Like, I just need money. Um, or I'm not passionate about this job. Or, you know, you could have been passionate about the job and then you have some superior step on all the work that you've done and go in a totally different direction and that you don't agree with. Um, so I think, like, just the irritation of having to say you like love this project go on month-long tours about it answering all these fan questions when your head is like not mentally in it can be kind of irritating and also it kind of like it puts words in your mouth so I feel like now that Jacob Elordi is not in these kind of contracts anymore he feels like free that he can say his true feelings um that were probably amplified by the fact that he had to do this like fake cosplay about how much he liked the movie at the time and similarly with Robert Pattinson I'm sure like it all just sort of like bubbled over he was just tired of Twilight having done this for years and years and years um and I also just think that like Especially in Robert Pattinson's case, I can't say the same about Jacob Elordi because I'm not on the Kissing Booth fandom radar. I also want to say that Twilight was like monocultural, whereas Kissing Booth was like definitely its own niche. <laughs> so I think this probably makes more sense for why Robert Pattinson got more tired of it, but his privacy was definitely breached. Like, you know, fans are crazy sometimes, and I think his relationship with Kristen Stewart also took a toll because of all of like the fandom mania stuff. So I can see why he in particular would have like more distaste towards Twilight than gratitude. But um, I don't know. It's just hard to side with them when they're like living such luxurious lifestyles when the majority of actors, you know, would die for a lead role um, and who are just like scraping by working service jobs. My controversial take is that it's less about the fans <laughs> and hurting fan feelings because, listen, The Sound of Music is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's like top five. I'm not even joking. Like, I love that movie. I've injected that movie into my veins. I can quote so much from that movie. I love that movie, okay? Christopher Plummer did not love that movie when he was filming it, and he's talked about it, and his experience not loving that movie has not impacted my own love for that movie at all. Because I get it. A job is a job. You don't see the magic of it while you're making it. A lot of sets are not magical. You know, like you're doing take after take after take. You're getting up early every day for months on end, sitting in hair and makeup for hours on end. It's an exhausting process. So I totally can understand why any person, any member of the crew working on a particular movie would be like, I don't love working. <laughs> so I think it's a little ridiculous of fans to be pissed off that people who are making these movies were not that enthusiastic during the process of making these movies. But again, I also think it's kind of like an industry framing thing where the Hollywood industry is kind of tight-lipped about the kind of stuff that goes into production. Like, I honestly didn't know anything about what happens on set until, like, I started befriending more people in the industry who would just tell me these things. Um, and, you know, people write about it sometimes, but you just don't hear too much during the press cycle about 
the kind of labor that goes into these movies. And if you do hear about the labor, you hear about it in some sort of like, we love working and making this movie for you all. And we love having to do all this stuff for you. That's the kind of framing you're receiving this information through. And so I think as an audience, we don't really get the sense that it is tiring. And I also think that movies benefit from you not really knowing that there's like a whole process in making the magic happen so that's why they the Hollywood industry doesn't really talk about these things because they want it to feel like an enigma so that we can feel really lost in a movie while we're watching it and not think about like oh I wonder how many takes this took or I wonder like um what this the lighting setup is and like where the boom mics are being held you know like those types of things take you out of watching a movie which doesn't benefit the industry which feeds and capitalizes on our need for escapism Okay, back to what I was saying earlier with the killer, David Fincher um, and Michael Fassbender. I watched that movie recently also and honestly, like I didn't love it. I do like David Fincher. Like I liked Gone Girl a lot. I liked Fight Club. I liked The Social Network. Um, I thought Seven was okay. I know that's contentious, but you know, whatever. Um, And... I just am used to David Fincher doing plot twists. You know, like Gone Girl has a major twist in it. Fight Club has a major twist in it. Seven has a major twist in it. Like when it comes to a crime thriller, I'm expecting a major twist. And there just wasn't one in The Killer. Um, And so I felt like I was like holding on for something that just never happened. And then I was kind of disappointed by the end because it is a very straightforward movie. The premise is... There's an assassin who's played by Michael Fassbender. He is supposed to assassinate someone. He fails the mission despite being super methodical and calculated and whatnot. Like the entire movie is an internal monologue, which is another pet peeve I have. Like I was like, Priscilla didn't have enough internal monologue immediately when I came out of the movie. And then immediately after watching The Killer, I was like, oh, too much internal monologue. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a movie for me. But I try to do this thing now where I have my first impression for the movie. I write it on Letterboxd or whatever. And then I go and actually read reviews for the movie or try to find articles about what the director has said about the movie. Because I think for me to really make an opin- form an opinion about it, then I want to know what the other perspectives are. Because there's a lot of stuff that I don't catch when I first watch. I, when I watch things, I kind of watch things in terms of story, which I've said before, I think in a previous podcast. I notice bad acting, obviously. And then I just care a lot about the enjoyment of it all, all right? Like a movie doesn't have to be that good. But if I'm having the time of my life, that's a good fucking movie. I actually read something recently about Letterboxd because I noticed that there are some people who don't love Letterboxd reviews. And I understand why. They're kind of like off the cuff, cheeky. A lot of these reviews, the top reviews at least, don't go into the details of the movie or don't really have a poignant perspective about what happened in the movie. They're kind of just like one-liners or tweet reviews. That's probably the easiest way that I can explain what a Letterboxd review is. It's like someone wrote a tweet about a movie, just like one line, kind of funny, um, moved on with their day. But as a reader, you like laugh, but you're like, what kind of review is this? 
And there are definitely some people who don't love that about Letterboxd, but I personally really love that about Letterboxd. And I was reading this article written by this um, professor who was saying that Letterboxd is one of those mediums that champions the first, like the primary source reactions to a movie. Like a true audience reaction to a movie because people write their letterbox reviews like immediately after seeing a movie. It's your first reaction to it. It's before you did any research. It's before you read any other reviews. It's your primal like true opinion about having watched something. And I think that's super beautiful because there are so many movies that I've like written a little letterbox review of. I don't necessarily agree with my review anymore. But I do appreciate that that was the first take I had. And I also love that, you know, I I date all these reviews. So I see like, you know, how old I was when I wrote this. Like I can extrapolate like what I was going through or what events were happening in my life that would contribute to me feeling a certain way about this movie. So I just, I love Letterboxd for that. But back to the killer, I keep leaving from this movie. I clearly don't want to talk about it because my brain just gives me like a million thoughts a day about something else. So where were we? The killer does not actually kill his intended target and disaster ensues. He rushes back to where he lives. He finds out that his company that he works for sent assassins to assassinate him as sort of like insurance because this mission went badly, um, to appease the client. But he wasn't home because, you know, he's, like, smart enough to know he wasn't supposed to go back. And he, like, threw out his phone and everything. And they attacked his girlfriend, who is now in the hospital. So he decides to go on this revenge spree to track down those assassins who were trying to initially kill him. But even though you would think, from that description, it sounds like it's a very emotionally driven movie. It's not. It's very cold. And arguably, he's going after these assassins, not because he's in love with his girlfriend, who never comes up in the internal monologue again, but because he needs to prove to himself that he's still good at what he does after this botched mission. So I was reading more about this movie, and a lot of people were saying that The killer is a representation of David Fincher, which is kind of funny because David Fincher is like very methodical and very calculated as a director, but his last movie arguably flopped, which was Mank, um, which flopped so hard that I didn't even see it. (laughs) But I think it's worth noting because this does sound like kind of like one of those, you know, bullshit conspiracy theories. Um... The final boss that <laughs> Michael Fassbender um, meets in the movie is this man who's played by Arliss Howard, who is also the same actor who plays Louis B. Mayer, who was the um, one of the big producers in the movie Mank. And who's also in real life, because Mank is, is like based on real life. But um, – Yeah, I think that was definitely calculated and that was definitely on purpose. So I can totally see this movie being a parody of David Fincher himself. (laughs) I think it's also interesting that in The Killer, there's like so many references to bigger corporations. Like for instance, when he's staking out 
his assassination, he goes to get food from McDonald's. He also like operates in a WeWork building. He disguises himself as a FedEx employee. Um, he buys Amazon products. So I think it's also like a larger commentary about the film industry and that the killer could be any movie director who's now sort of like having to constantly play into the hands of these corporations uh, like Netflix, like HBO, like Amazon Prime. And I think it's also important to note that the environment in The Killer is very sterile and flat, which I think implicates how a lot of these big production companies flatten like the director's vision in a way. Um, They kind of take a lot of artistic integrity out of movies for profit. So on that front, I think The Killer is a really interesting commentary. But again, I'm glad I have my letterbox review, which was literally, let me read this letterbox review actually, because I don't talk about any of those things in my letterbox review. It's just my off the cuff first impression of the movie. And it was mm, sort of masturbatory. A worthy start, but the plot ended up formulaic and uninspiring, and at a certain point, the endless nihilistic internal monologue becomes just so exhausting and reminds you of your boyfriend at age 19, complete with a Smith's obsession. Yeah, and I I mean, I stand by that as being, like, my impression of the heart of the story because when I was watching it, I was, like, a little bored. Like, I didn't have the time of my life, and that's true. I think David Vincher is very smart. I think that... His movie offers a lot of like metaphorical commentary that is also very smart. Um, But you know, two things can be true. It can be a great movie in one regard, but still something that I didn't necessarily enjoy. Okay, I think that's all I have to say for today. I'm also so glad that the SAG strike is over for more reasons than one. But in the context of this episode, it's so I can talk about movies again. (laughs) Because I've been really like not giving any movie commentary because I didn't want to like um violate sag rules but i love talking about movies i miss talking about movies i'm sad i never really got to talk about barbie or oppenheimer um maybe i will in the future if i do like a rewatch it's i've kind of like lost a lot of my talking points honestly about those movies other than the fact that killian murphy is mother and i am still slightly obsessed with him and waiting for the next <laughs> christopher nolan movie so that i can see him again but all right. <laughs> I hope you have a lovely rest of your day, guys. Um, let me know if you have any thoughts about Priscilla. I'd be interested in reading or the killer or honestly, Alfred Hitchcock even. You can write into my email, highbrowbymina at gmail.com. And if you want to follow the pod, you can go to Instagram.com slash highbrow.pod. If you want to follow me, support me on Patreon, which would be so, so, so appreciated. Um, I offer bonus content. So that is Patreon.com slash highbrowbymina, which is also in the description. Every link is in the description. Um, yeah, thank you guys so much. Editing is by Sophie Carter. Music is by Olivia Martinez. And cover art is by Lindsay Mintz. I'll see you next time. Bye.